Yep, but because Florida, can we make this just a segment that repeats? You want to do just, like, just a because Florida segment? It, it doesn't have to be every week, but, you know, when you see a good, good Florida article. I, I have no objection to that. I have no objection to a specific Florida segment. There's enough coming out of that state that we like, really, guys? podcast i'm your host danny paul with me as always is the vice host leon coventry leon danny happy thursday happy thursday my friend you recently celebrated a birthday did you not i was publicly celebrated for spending one more revolution around the sun and i appreciated that yeah hella old now huh you know i don't uh I'm really pitching hard because last year I turned 40. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it, and I just don't think that anyone should have aged a year during COVID because we couldn't properly celebrate. <laughs> yeah. Let's all take a year off. Yeah. So that year didn't exist. Uh, this was my 40th birthday again, and it was good. It was good. Played, played golf again, which I love. And, uh, I, I find it hilarious how much better I play when, it's not a competition or it's, there's no pressure on me. I, I, I can never be a professional. Uh, I would crack. I love crack. Wait, what? There's something wrong with the mic. What? Hot mic. Hot mic. Well, let's, uh, it's been, I mean, cause you took the night off for your birthday. So it's been a few weeks and, uh, we should probably do a little recap of the Brown bracket. Oh yeah. Brown bracket. Brown. Because that's what we're drinking tonight, correct? That is correct. That is correct. So we have a special guest joining us tonight. Mr. Jones is going to contribute a little bit later. But right now, let's talk about our brown bracket for 2021. We had 16 contestants come into the brown bracket in four categories. And our winner was the Knob Creek Single Barrel. Shocker. Wouldn't have ever guessed that. Yeah, I know. We, we thought Knob Creek was kind of a sleeper anyway, right? But then the single barrel was the one that you went with because of the single barrel category. That's right. But the, the single barrel, uh, it's, you know, there's nothing wrong with traditional Knob Creek, but the single barrel really stepped up. It was, I mean, when you're going blind, uh, taste test, and, you know, the categories we were including in there were, how easy is it to get? Well, actually, it's pretty easy to get. And uh, and we and what is the nose like? Pretty good nose. And when you we did blind taste tests, I mean, it was it was legit. I it at least in, in this year's uh, for the single berry single barrel for it to even come out of that category, going against the Jack Daniels single barrel, the Jim Bean single barrel, and the Four Roses single barrel, which I thought Four Roses was going to be the one that won. Uh, good, good win all around. I really didn't think it was going to knock off my favorite Buffalo trace, mm. but, but you and I did not vote it the same. I still voted Buffalo trace higher than Knob Creek, but because of all the other factors and the way you voted it, Knob Creek edged it out. So well, the bottle and bond category for me was the big eye opener because I was familiar with three of the progressives. I was familiar with all of the traditionals. And then of course, single barrel just means what you love more so. But the idea of bottled and bond was uh, an eye opener for me because I don't recognize any of these guys. But then if you go back and you do a little homework and do a little research on the Bourbon family, uh, these guys are, you know, pretty solid names in the world of bourbon. So it was very interesting uh, to me for the bottled and bond category. And then of course I developed a bit of a relationship with old granddad, as you know, I developed Uh even more of a relationship with old Forrester. So for Angel's Envy to sweep in and knock it out, uh, that was that hurt. That hurt. Two two of my favorites got knocked out. I, I, I can't believe Angel's Envy edged out with Jefferson's because how much you love Jefferson's Ocean. Yeah. I mean, I, I like Bullet too. So um, regardless, Knob Creek is our winner. And so that is our brown for this evening. Is that correct? That's correct. Cheers to you, my friend. 
Cheers to you. Do we have our guest yet? Knob Creek Single Barrel. Our guest has joined us, Mr. Jones. Hello. Hello, gentlemen. How are we doing? Mm. That's tasty. Our little tati. Um, and I don't have any Knob Creek, actually. Uh, I didn't know that was my brown choice for the day. So, no, sir. Uh, what, brown, what brown did you different. choose for tonight? Ooh, Widow Jean, Lucky 13. Huh. A uh, huh. straight bourbon whiskey, 13-year aged in American oak. Yeah, you said thirteen nice, years. It, it, thirteen. Hmm. Ah, yes. I never had that one. Very well. Where? Where's it? Where do they make that? New York. New York. New York, New York, York City. City. New York City makes. Well, we're going <laughs> to talk right. about that because that is technically incorrect. Yeah, it's distilled in Indiana, bottled by a uh, Brooklyn, New York. So the answer is Indiana. Um, as things these days are made all over the place. So, so it's, got, go. it's got really good Midwestern roots with a little bit of attitude. Mm-hmm. Uh, Very well. Slap you outside your mouth. <laughs> all right. Make you slap your mama. <laughs> well, now that we have our brown, good to see you. Let's, uh, let's get into some brown news, shall we? This is the darkest brown you got. Yeah. And I got news for you. Today's brown news is courtesy of the brown bracket, where I pulled up the wikis on Leon's favorite sauce, the bourbon. Bourbon, according to Wikipedia, is a type of American whiskey, a barrel-aged distilled liquor made primarily from corn. The name ultimately derives from the French Bourbon dynasty, although the precise inspiration for the whiskey's name is uncertain. Contenders include Bourbon, Kentucky, or Bourbon Street in New Orleans, both of which are named after the dynasty. So you, sir, are drinking French King in your bottle. I won't hold that against it. I, I, I know <laughs> I'm not going to rip on, on the French. Usually I, I'm not a huge, <laughs> huge fan of French food. I do like French fries, but... Uh, and I've been Which to France a couple. No, I've been to France a couple times. I think it might be my German heritage, but it's usually not a to fan. Me that you are of the German distinction, and you drink French booze. Yeah, don't let this get out. Hey, lucky uh, and lucky fifteen. Don't don't tell anybody. We, we will not. Uh, we will not share outside of the magic fifteen. Let's get a little bit deeper into it, shall we? Uh, distilling was most likely brought to present-day Kentucky in the late 18th century by the Scots or the Scots-Irish or other settlers, including English, Irish, Welsh, German, and French, who began to farm the area in earnest. The origin of bourbon as a distinct form of whiskey is not well documented. There are many conflicting legends and claims, some more credible than others. For example, the invention of bourbon is often attributed to Elijah Craig. Pause mm-hmm. for identification, one of my favorite bourbons. Elijah Craig is a Baptist minister and distiller credited with many Kentucky firsts, Fulling Mill, Paper Mill, Rope Walk, who is said to have been the first to age the product in charred oak casks, a process that gives bourbon its brownish color and distinctive taste. In Bourbon County, across the county line from Craig's distillery in what was then Fayette County, an early distiller named Jacob Spears is credited with being the first to label his product as bourbon whiskey. Although still popular and often repeated, the Craig legend is apocryphal. Similarly, the Spears story is a local favorite, but is rarely repeated outside the county. There likely was no single inventor of bourbon, which developed into its present form in the late 19th century. Essentially, any type of grain can be used to make whiskey, and the practice of aging whiskey and charring the barrels for better flavor has been known in Europe for centuries. But... I have two bourbon hounds on the show with me today. Leon, jump in here. Why bourbon and what makes bourbon distinct from other whiskeys? Well, right. Well, first of all, right off the bat, I want to say that the taste for me is is way better. I I mean, I, I tried to be a mature adult and drink scotch. I know a lot of people like scotch. It's very adult thing to do, uh, but I never liked it. And I didn't know what I didn't like about it. And I realized it was, well, the price for sure, but uh, it it was just too peaty for me. Right. You know, I, and here's another thing. I don't like IPA beers either, either. You know, does that make me a terrible person? I guess. I don't know. But 
Yeah. Uh, I, I I like weedy beers. I I like I like Hefeweizen. That's I don't like I yeah. yeah. This is a German. So so when I started, I th- I actually just kind of gave up on whiskey in general. I wasn't a huge fan of Jack unless I put Coke in it. Wasn't a big fan of Scotch, but I drank it every once in a while if I if it was a special occasion. And then uh, in my prior position, I. I had to pick a bourbon to put on board and that's when I really started getting into it. I was like, man, this is, this is pretty good. And then I brought it back and I got this bottle of, and a really, I saw them distill it. I watched them bottle it. I didn't know anything about it. I brought it home. I said, Hey, triple B, you got to try this. And you know, she tries it and I'm like, yeah, you know what? We could drink this. This is good. What is this called? Blant Blantons. Yeah. This is good. <laughs> yeah, this is good. You started I, you know, right. Like, and then we just basically chugged the whole bottle thinking it's common. It was not. And then we realized what we'd done. And uh, that's pretty much how I got into bourbon. Cause I'm like, well, I love that. Now I got to try everything else. that's actually accessible and uh, see which one of those I like, but it's, I'm glad that you brought up the wiki page because one of the things I love, and you called it out here, is all the folklore of where bourbon came from and how it became popular. And it's definitely one of those things that's associated with the U.S., right? It's a U.S. thing. Scotch is Scotland. U.S. Mm-hmm. is bourbon. And uh, it's it's very, um, yeah, it, it, I, I would say it's genuine to us and, and obviously our our history. But the story that I heard when I was down at Buffalo Trace and you know, I got to go through the whole history of that distillery, which is also just a national treasure. If you ever get the chance to go out there because it's so old, it's one of the few uh, that actually survived through prohibition. And, you know, they did what they had to do uh, for Uncle Sam so that they could keep the distillery open. But what they were talking about very early on is they were, you know, they're they're moonshiners by nature, by nature up there. Right. And, you know, they know how to they know how to make moonshine. They know how to make uh, this type of alcohol. And because of what was going on in the country or what have you, um, they didn't have that ability down south. And so they were sending wires up north to say, hey, you know, send some booze down the river, down the Mississippi River. And so they didn't, they, they, I don't know if this story is true, but this is the story they told me, which I thought was a great story. So they put this shine in the only containers they had, which were these barrels, and they threw it in the barrels, threw it on the barge, let it float down the Mississippi. And when it got there, uh, and then uh, it got there, and then they send a message back months later, like, send more of that brown liquor. And they're like, what brown liquor? We sent, brown we, liquor. We sent white lightning, not realizing that the, the time yeah. it took to go down the river aged it enough to turn it brown in the barrel and they love the flavor of it. Um, so I don't know if it's true, but sure is a great story. So I, you know, you ask me what I like about bourbon. I love that it's American. I love that it's unique to us. I love that it has standards written around it, just like German beer, right? If you want, if you want to be called a German beer, you gotta, you gotta meet X, Y, Z criteria. Yeah. Right. And, right. Yeah. I mean, I love that about bourbon and, uh, and I find because those parameters are put in place, I typically like all of it. I like some more than others, but I like all of it. So that that's why I like the bourbon. The current resolution adopted by the United States Congress in 1964 declared bourbon to be a distinct product of the United States. Uh, bourbon has become the name for any corn based whiskey, but in order for it to be known as bourbon there's a couple of federal standards for identity here that i thought was interesting it's got to be produced in the united states and territories so you can have puerto rican bourbon oh there you go might have to try and get a hold of some of that made from a grain mixture that is at least 51 percent corn Uh aged in new charred oak containers distilled to no more than 160 proof i thought that was interesting you can't get more than 80 percent alcohol by volume bourbon That is interesting. Both of those points are interesting because that's a big differentiator from scotch and whiskey and all the other ones. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it is a whiskey, but they'll they'll reuse the barrels over and over and over, but bourbon never will. Bottled like other whiskeys at 80 proof or more. Uh, bourbon has no minimum specified duration. However, we talked about this in one of the earlier episodes. The bottled in bond nomenclature requires a minimum of four years aging. 
Mm-hmm. That's the bond. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was pretty awesome. See, Mr. Jones, yeah. you got anything to throw in? I like booze. Okay. <laughs> Just all of it. Good man. That was that was uh, booze, I, not I, boobs, I, right? I, <laughs> or I like both. Um, no, I, I think that's actually really true. Um, it's interesting to see that, you know, America has something that finally they can hold on to versus, you know, whiskeys, which, you know, you have Japanese whiskeys, you have whiskeys all over the world that can be made. Same thing as wine, whatever, um, you know, different grape varietals can, you know, distinctly get, you know, different, uh, flavor profiles, which will be different, uh, you know, subsects of, you know, Bordeaux regions and everything else. So, when you talk about bourbon and whatnot, it is uh, always a clean barrel, which is, you know, interested from, you know, as we spoke to earlier with the scotches, which is basically reused barrels. They don't use new. They always use reuse. So it is a nice, uh, nice, fun uh, drink to experiment with as uh, there's so many different varieties out there as uh, the world of craft spirits and whatnot has been um, exploding over late. And I think something's staying tried and true within its lanes is what's uh, I think one thing we stay kind of grounding to uh, consumers is, you know, this is a bourbon, so it should have this X, Y, Z versus, you know, the whiskey that I'm having or the scotch that, that just came, that I just found, they'll be completely different in kind of profiles and whatnot. They'll, uh, they can blur the lines and be something different. So um, it's nice to have some consistency as you, uh, want to you know craft different palettes profiles to different things and it's american as apple pie and american as the blues so bourbon mm. is a hashtag copyright america uh, last so if you don't like the, i think what you're saying there is that if you don't like bourbon you're a communist is that what i'm hearing uh, or or, or some sure. other uh form of evil yes uh, last thing that I throw in here is uh, bourbon is served in a variety of manners, including neat, diluted with water, over ice, quote on the rocks, with cola or other beverages in simple mixed drinks and in cocktails, including the Manhattan, the old fashioned, the whiskey sour and the mint julep. There is also a cocktail known as the bourbon smash. You guys ever had a bourbon never smash? Had yeah, I never nope. had that one. Something for so. a future episode. I'm going to have to try that. Jones, I mean, you talked about it uh, briefly there, but I consider now what I'm getting into and the community I'm getting into in this, this bourbon community, it's almost to me, it feels like the UFC versus boxing. And what I mean there is boxing is wine. Okay. Boxing has been around for a long time. It's got, credibility people understand it we have certified sommeliers that could tell you the notes and it's got a very long long history and then there's then you got the ufc which is this up and comer it's you know it's got a few black eyes it's a little bit rougher around the edges but it's a little bit more american and uh you know that to me i see that as bourbon and i feel like bourbon is starting to surpass the wine just like ufc surpassing boxing and uh, at least in my world that's my analogy of what's going on in in the brown it's a, wine world. It's, it's, it's a close i'd only say that wine is it's a class thing like i mean if you get down to it it's like you know this class of you know, wine is expensive when you start really drizing the bottle. I mean, how many bottles of bourbon can you name that are over a thousand dollars? There's a few. There's a couple. You know, whether yeah. they are, there's a few. How many mm-hmm. thousand dollar bottle of wines can you name? Thousands, just just thousands, and they're all dependent because, you know, well, I think you meant how many bourbon? Profile. Yeah, yeah. So, oh, yeah. I, you're, you're saying, saying how like, many bourbons? Yeah. There's not that many brands yeah, I mean, that are over a thousand. There's not, not, there's not. And then there's how many bottles of wine or how many brands of wine that you can have. And also, you know, there's a time thing where you do have a devil cut or you have a, you know, more expensive, you know, bourbon style. But, you know, when it comes to wine, you can have wine that's, you know, 100 years old and it's, you know, a few thousand dollars or, you know, whatever it is. So to your point, is it like, yes, you have this refinement class thing of like, I'm proper. And then you have bourbon, which is, you know, a lot less infrastructure to make you know, a lot more players in the market and um, a lot more variety that you can kind of 
uh, half. I mean, wine is doing that too in the lower ends, but it, I see I see your point. It it is kind of this uh, uh, new age, you know, new evolution of consumption of spirits and overall mm-hmm. liquor. Awesome, Danny. That wraps up our brown news, boys. Brown news. Brown news. Brown news. Ah. We'll be right back. All right, we're back. It's time for business news. News team, assemble. Let's get down. Let's get down to business. Today's business news comes to us from fortune.com, as in Fortune magazine. Uh, We're looking up today the best companies of 2021. And so this is the top 10 best companies to work for. I'll give you guys the intro and then we'll go down through the top 10. Prolonged shutdowns, workforces that felt isolated and overwhelmed, you name it, COVID brought it. Still, these companies managed not just to muddle through, but to become role models. The takeaway seems clear. Businesses that treat employees well during the toughest of times will attract talent, even when the war for talent heats up. Here, the 100 hottest workplaces and how they stay that way. Coming in at number 10, American Express. I actually know someone that works there. Uh, It's like one of their auxiliary businesses and travel. And she got to keep her job. There's no way that it made financial sense, probably, for a lot of those months that she kept her job, but they did it. And I think they financially could do it. So they did the financially and responsible thing to to keep uh, her employed. And I thought that was phenomenal. I think Ziggy's wife still works for American Express. That would be correct. And so did he at, at a time before his current position. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, great. So, so we're, we're looking at national, a really good place to work for. Yeah. So we're looking at national and or global brand solid been around for decades. Totally makes sense. Top 10. Next one up. Number nine, capital one financial. Anybody that has a bad motherfucker as their as their uh, representative is a good company to me. So you didn't that. even have to put them on the list. That. Sam Jackson. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, totally. And again, two finance companies starting out. Yeah, mm. but they're credit card points, the transaction. No, the transaction though. Like, like they're not, they're just, these are plays of business where basically they're making 2% on every single transaction. So yes, um, Travel is down. So you could say the American Express or Capital One, they had that would see kind of a decline, but people didn't stop spending money. I mean, there was no. definitely a retraction in consumer, but I still say there's still a lot of transactions. So these companies are still making a lot of money and they could still basically service their employees at home. And I would also say both of them don't require a brick and mortar front end. Mm-hmm. And it right. was really easy for them to roll into a, a work from home scenario. Yeah. Also a national brand. Yeah. I mean, they're transaction based. You can pretty much ship everyone at home, keeping the travel people. That was a smart play for the future. Definitely get that. Cause you know, people are eventually dying to get to Hawaii, dying to get to the Bahamas. So number eight on the list is the Camden property trust. Uh, not a national brand, as you might think. And when I think of Camden, I think of New Jersey. This is actually headquartered in Houston. Camden maintained its spot in the top 10, not least because of its generous and compassionate approach to helping its almost 1,700 employees through the pandemic. Majority are frontline staff at the landlord's properties across the United States, and Camden took measures to reward them for their stressful, high-risk work. This included paying out $3 million in bonuses to frontline employees last year, as well as providing more than 350 workers financially impacted by the virus with relief fund grants of up to three grand each. Not bad, huh? That's pretty good. It touches my heart specifically because I'm in that industry. You're in the property. Yeah. Totes. Number seven, Texas Health Resources. Again, another Texas company, but not a national brand that you would notice from television ads or, uh, you know, large media properties. One of the nation's largest nonprofit faith-based health systems. Hmm. 
Donates more than $60 million annually to philanthropic and nonprofit efforts. 34% of its board of trustees are minorities. Well done, Texas Health Resources. That's a, that's a tough one because hospitals did not make any money. They really got crushed. I mean, they had to depend a lot on federal money, PPP, other kind of grants to, uh, to make it. That's interesting. Number six. That's not possible. Hold what? on. What? We can't just gloss over that statement. So? No, I, I'm talking about these. There was nobody busier than hospitals in the last year. Nobody. No, no, no. You, you don't get it, though. How do hospitals make money? They don't make money on patients coming through, uh, elective and, surgeries. you know, coming through the emergency room, elective surgery, all elective surgery, all elective surgery was canceled. Like they are only starting that now. So no the reality jobs, was no boob jobs, yeah. no high margin procedures. So yeah, for sure. All that stuff's gone. And so even with private practice, doctors, people weren't going to the, they weren't going to the doctor. People weren't doing their annual checkups. They're like, the reality was doctors like an independent doctor's office down the street got crushed. And then also hospital did not do well. They lost a ton of money and they needed federal assistance to kind of dig themselves out of it. And there's a lot of different money in ways they were able to do it. Um, but yeah, the government basically bailed out hospitals period. As, as they Flat should out. have. And I think this is much yeah. different, if you know, much different, we could do a whole show on this, but if, if the if the hospitals or anybody that works for the medical industry struggled this last year, then we, we uh, yeah. failed. We failed as a nation because there's nobody that worked yeah. harder in the last year than that profession. Yeah, I, I'm not I'm not discounting it. I'm just saying that's the reality of what happened. And yeah, I think that's that's huge. And them doing so, they found a financial way to do it. Um, didn't cut fat like some hospitals, you know, let's lose this. There aren't that department. Anyways, I did a deal. That's the reason why I know it's all about it. So anyways. Wow. We're uh, in the interest of time. Let's jump forward a little bit. So let's jump up to number three, which was Hilton. Hospitality chain Hilton was among the hardest hit in the earliest days of the pandemic. The company furloughed about 45,000 members of its workforce and laid off 20% of its corporate staff. But through those tough decisions, the company treated its workers with quote, dignity and compassion. Each decision was made to do the best of the company could do to help people in crisis. So this is an interesting That's part. Is it, it ranks number three when mm -hmm. they, they got rid of five figures worth of employees and they laid off 20% of its corporate staff. Like they cut to the bone to stay alive during lockdown and they're mm -hmm. still number three. They got crushed. Some kind of secret sauce going they on got that crushed, organization. But they also looked at it as being they get to cut fat where they could. Flat out. That's my opinion. They found areas where that maybe hotels weren't succeeding where they were, closing different departments. You know. But I mean, that is that's amazing though. They still did a, a wonderful job managing the situation. Yeah, so no kidding. Uh, full time employees get thirty seven days of personal time off. That's not bad. So despite the fact that hotels and the hospitality industry got completely decimated during lockdowns, Hilton makes number three on the list of 100 best companies to work for. Good for you, Hilton. Fascinating. Number two, of Salesforce. Benioff can't stop winning. You guys got any experience with nope. Salesforce? Much. A yeah. lot. Oh, company's a monster. A lot. Yes, they're juggernaut. Company's a monster. It pretty much is the best positioned business next to maybe who we're going to speak to in a second with their ability to generate money in the current pandemic uh, lifestyle that everyone found themselves in. It was yeah, perfect. Perfect. When the world was reeling from the outbreak of the pandemic, software giant Salesforce initiated efforts to aid people both inside and outside the company. Salesforce donated more than 60 million pieces of safety gear to healthcare workers in their communities. It also donated about $30 million dollars to small businesses, marginalized communities, and schools. Uh, they were just recently in the news. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. yeah, they were just recently in the news because Benioff sent over uh, a couple of airplanes full of vaccines to India because mm -hmm. they were struggling so bad. Mm -hmm. reimbursement I want to point out that is not Salesforce Tower, by the way, in that picture. That oh, is no. not Salesforce Tower, and that is not San Francisco. Why? Because like, the, uh, the building's like not falling into the... Uh, <laughs> no, it's the not the Salesforce, Salesforce Tower. Tower. I thought that was a apartment <laughs> building. No, it is. No, I just think any building. 
millennial, any, millennial yeah. tower. Any Salesforce building in San Francisco is the one that you look over. for now when you go to San Francisco. It's like there's Coit Tower. Where's yeah. the Salesforce Tower? Oh, it's an eyesore. It's a no. It's, I I don't know. I think it's cool. They you know they project images on the top of it. It's it's an interesting building, but they're a monster. They a are. Yeah. Vacant real estate in that building. Also, interesting within San Francisco is the number one best company to work for Cisco systems. The this picture is not doing them justice by the yeah, way. Not, uh, <laughs> no. No. Uh, it speaks to diversity, but normally you want to get attractive employees to talk about diversity. All I care about is posture at this point. I really feel like they have been sitting at their computer too long with these yeah, poses. Yeah, you get some slouchers in this one, though. But they're all smiling. They all look happy. The company that takes much of the gear powering the internet tops this year's list after dealing with the pandemic better than most. When the world started shutting down, Cisco delayed already announced layoffs and extended pay and benefits for affected workers. Cisco also continued to pay hourly employees, even when office shutdowns kept them from coming to work. Placing a focus on employee well-being, Cisco ramped up communications, expanded benefits and access to mental health services, and provided multiple, quote, days for me for employees to step back and recharge. Long known for its community engagement, Cisco created a website to help remote students and donated unused video conferencing gear to bolster telemedicine offerings at local medical facilities. Good on you, Cisco. You know, this this is a great segment because... And I was just listening to a, a podcast earlier today, um, and they were talking about uh, community responsibility, right? I'm a businessman. I'm a business first, right? Dollars and cents. But this last year is unprecedented. And if you had any ability, which my company did, you know, I think we really stepped up a lot and we went over and beyond even what this ridiculous state requires us to do during uh, these these types of crisis. But, you know, when you just said, take a step back, look at, look at what's actually happening, throw your rule book out the window, have some compassion for people, you know, good on Cisco. That, that's really, really great stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, didn't, I didn't know that about him. So, you know, I, I respect him a lot more now. You figure you spend a third of your waking life at work. It should be worthwhile going there, right? Mm-hmm. So it's nice. It, it's nice that the the model for employee treatment is shifting, and it's being led by the private sector. And companies like Cisco are stepping up, going, "We got money. Let's let's spend some of it in the right place." which is employees. Uh, one of my favorite quotes is from Richard Branson that says, we don't take care of the clients. We take care of the employees. The employees will take care of the clients. And I think that speaks to what Cisco's doing. Yep. Yep. Well, I, wraps I, up, I, uh, business news, boys. Now we're coming into my favorite segment. Let's go to the crank file. I could look for something in the crank file. Crank file. Whatever. This week's crank file comes to us from Euronews.com, published back on April 28th. Don't approach a whale carcass as it may explode, the Swedes are warned. (laughs) This is a serious problem. This is a serious, serious problem. If you see a beached whale, give it the requisite awe and then get the hell off the beach because these are very large animals that are not designed to be out of the water. So, oh, that's uh, awesome. I, I'm not Swedish, so I'm going to butcher this one. But authorities on the Swedish <laughs> island of Uland have warned citizens and tourists not to approach the dead body of a beached whale, which, quote, may explode. The humpback whale carcass has been stranded near the southeast of the island since last week near the small town of Murabilanga. <laughs> there you go. The local municipality issued a strong warning to locals on Wednesday morning, urging them to not wade into the water and approach the carcass under any circumstances. People are reported to be staying close to the dead whale body that has floated ashore in southeastern Uland, a statement read on Tuesday. This is dangerous for the individual and may cause harm. Since being made aware of the stranded whale last week, Murbelanga officials have been taking samples to find out how to handle the dead body. When the authorities work at the whale, they do so with protective equipment and helmets. At the moment, the whale is fermenting due to the decomposition process and may explode. These are great forces that should not be ignored. (laughs) 
The whale is currently <laughs> stranded just 40 meters from the shore outside the town, which has less than 2,000 inhabitants. Jeez. When was this article? When was this released? This was uh, two weeks ago, April 28th. Even two weeks ago, who the hell is waiting in any water near Sweden? Oh, it has to I mean, be exploded by now. Well, I'm you just guys, saying. You guys got to look it up on YouTube. I've seen a video of a whale exploding, and it knocks this dude into next week like a superhero movie. Oh, I believe it. But but it warns people not to wade in the water. And nobody's wading in water that's 20 degrees. Like, how cold is Swedish water right now? It's basically that's in the Arctic. That's a good point. Your curiosity is going to be held back by the temperature in the water. Yeah, this the second thing. Did you, if you haven't, uh, I really need you and the 15 to go YouTube this. It's back in the 80s. There was a beached whale. I want to say it was somewhere in Southern California. And they didn't know what to do with it. They didn't know, like, how do we, do we chop it up? Like, how do, we, how do we get rid of this thing? Because it's so massive. And their bright idea was to get a pyrotechnician to come out and blow it up. Blow it up. And so they 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 brought a professional pyrotechnician, and the news was there to cover it. And they blew up this whale. And just like you'd expect, it was raining hot magma (laughs) whale guts for miles all over the place. The whole town stunk. And it was a rotten whale. It was hilarious. It was, it, it's, it's real. It's YouTube. Go, go Google exploding whale. It's good. Yeah. Good times. <laughs> so even if they need a little help, still not a good idea. Don't yeah, blow don't, up whales. Don't, don't go near a whale. Anyway, that was the crank file. Uh, we have an addition to the crank file this week uh, in honor of Leon. Uh, we're going to call this section because Florida. And I can say that because I went to school there. Because anything goes to Florida, baby, let the good times roll. New venomous species of tarantula-like spider discovered in South Florida. That's right. If the gators and the racism weren't bad enough, now you have deadly spiders. A venomous tarantula-like spider discovered in South Florida in 2012 has been identified as a new species of medium-sized trapdoor spider, according to experts. The Pine Rockland Trapdoor Spider was found by a zookeeper at Zoo Miami, who was checking reptile traps in the endangered Pine Rockland Forest. Another spider located about two years later was sent out to experts for an evaluation. It was confirmed also to be one of these. The fact that a new species like this could be found in a fragment of endangered forest in the middle of the city underscores the importance of preserving these ecosystems before we lose not only what we know, but also what is still to be discovered. So this is in a tiny little piece of forest in the middle of the city that they built around in order to maintain uh, greenery. And this thing will kill you. Well done. Oh, Florida. it'll kill you. It'll kill you. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Florida. Hard pass. I'm not moving. <laughs> well there. And, and notice nobody else in the country is like, you know what? You should take care of that problem. We're like, you know, let them grow. I think you should breed them. Experts say spiders like the newly discovered species can live for decades in the same burrow over the entirety of their lifespan. For humans, the spider's venom has been likened to a bee sting. Not fatal. Uh, Okay. That's exciting. Uh, let's see. Discoveries like this can still be made even in the middle of a large developed region like the greater Miami area. And there was something else in here about the idea of uh, venoms of related species have been found to contain compounds with potential use as pain medications and cancer treatments. So there is a silver lining in this cloud. And that wraps up the crank file. Oh, good crank file this week. We'll be right back. back time for a parenting segment we can make kids right now that's why we're here and we have a new parent yeah so we're welcomed yeah. by mr jones who is a friend of the show glad to have you on buddy and we know that you weren't quite sure whether or not you'd be able to join us tonight so you want to talk about that how's how's it going with oh, uh, little just, man uh... 
Little man's great. Uh, he is going to be, I think he's 11 weeks right now. So getting big, uh, kind of the adjustment, I think, is anyone who's a new parent, you are constantly finding adjustments with what works, what doesn't work. And the latest thing was uh, we were going to start transitioning over to his crib. But um, I don't know if any of you guys have all experienced this. Well, maybe Leon has, but I don't know if he remembers it. Uh, he developed a uh, lactose intolerance. And so, oh, yeah, we do. We have that. Uh, yeah. So it, this is this will be the segment. Call it is uh, he was every time he would fart, he would shart. And he uh, would shart so bad that he would scream because he got a diaper rash. And so it was this constant every 30 minutes, like dealing with a screaming baby with a diaper rash who just farted. And he had a lactose problem. So he was always farting. So it was this constant vicious cycle of, oh, let's just calm him down enough so we can get him to change his diaper or the clean it up. And anyways, it, it takes days. It takes what, what, like four days to clear a diaper rash. So, uh, Anyone else have any other advice for this situation? Obviously, get them off the formula is number one. Good times. Um, get them out yep. of that and get the wife to stop drinking any milk, any cheese, any dairy out. Just throw it away right now. And um, but, you know, the other thing was, too. Why is it diapers don't work? Jesus Christ, man, he was shitting up his back constantly. Like, freaking. <laughs> it's like all of a sudden you're wet and you're like how do you get wet oh crap uh exactly crap i you know i'm very lucky i think in in my daughter's whole life I, I think maybe three blowouts the whole time i ever saw which i got really lucky now girls over boys i don't know what to tell you uh as far as the but you know my daughter is allergic to milk and we figured that out within two within two weeks of her being born because I was allergic to milk growing up. So I, I knew what was going on there. But that being said, she she definitely had what you're talking about. We had we tried all these different different creams to help because it is excruciating for these kids. We found the magic mix. So uh I don't know it off the top of my head. I'm gonna have to ask Triple B because she made it, she made the mix together. But I mean it's literally you put it on and six hours later it's cleared up. So oh. it's it's well, all, he, his was try. so bad it was bleeding. He had a sore. Like, no too. Yeah. Like yeah, that's we, rough. We 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 crossed over red, blotchy, zitty, and we went straight into a red sore. And oh, when yeah. you're there, you basically are changing diapers about every one to two hours, and you have buck you have uh, uh, bowls of soapy water and clean water to wash and that's where you're at and you're basically just lubing that thing up with aquifora as much as you can to you know keep everything from sticking <laughs> and yeah, anyway, we went through gallons of aquifer little, oh, hey, how, how awesome is it company. how awesome is it being over 40 and a parent for the first time <laughs> it's the worst welcome to the grind my friend <laughs> oh my god <laughs> that's I, the word man it's a grind hashtag parent Parenting is for the young. I know that much. I'm like, yeah, it's. I'm lucky that I don't need to sleep much, and so I adapted quickly. My wife, on the other hand, she loves sleeping, and it was a struggle for her. Mm -hmm. But it's hard. I think anybody like it's such an adjustment. It's just everyone else goes through it. Um, and you have good kids and bad kids, and uh, you know, fussy kids, non-fussy kids. He's great, um, but I think also you are a parent and you're trying to give him the best and maybe the best is the most work too. So there's a balance between the easy way out, just put him in a bottle and get him back, go to bed or breastfeed him all night and deal with it that way. So uh, there are ways to uh, nourish and raise a child and they are not easy. It is always a struggle. Uh, it's a tough one, but he's doing great. And we're just really blessed and happy that, you know, he's, I don't know if I told you this, his, his length is off the charts. His weight is in 89 and his head is 87 percentile. So All right. two months. Congratulations. So he's going to be a, yeah. he will be a tall mofo. Well, you look Shoot. back on these and moments the as badges of honor that you survived without wanting to kill the child. 
and yeah. each stage you, you go know. through, they happen, you know, I'm sure you'll hear this a million times and you will, you'll also reflect on it and go, I can't believe how quick that happened, but it does. You blink, it's gone. That segment's gone and you wish you could have it back. And uh, when you're living it though, when you're going through it, you're like, this is the worst. I, I just can't wait for the next stage. And then, <laughs> you know, up two months later, you look back and go, oh, I just wish I could hold you in my arms again. And now you're just a big, crying talk back there are certainly ages that i enjoyed and they were usually between those stages that leon's talking about of where they knew what they or they thought they knew what they were doing it was the stage they got to where they're like oh this is new i don't understand this that's usually when they're the most fun in my memory Mm -hmm. once they get a grasp on things and they start trying to assert their power that's usually when they're not giving fond memories, but for the most part, they're just these tiny little humans reacting to the world around them. And, you know, they came out cute. So you don't kill them. Yeah. They, they are adorable, lovable, cute things that smile back at you and go, Oh, well, it's not that bad. It's really, it can, it can get, it's wonderful. You're in that zone where you're like, well, why don't we get another one? That, that, that's a great idea right now. I don't know anything about that. Yeah, uh, yeah, we didn't have that conversation (laughs) until two. So if you're having that now, good on you. (laughs) We 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 never want to get out of diapers because once you get out of diapers, you really can't go back in. But yeah, yeah, up up until two, neither of us looked at each other like, oh, this is great. We need more. (laughs) Anyways, yeah, it's uh, it's good. So that was that one. Um, The only other topic I could think of is it. It, it, it's so interesting how that's just kind of the blowout thing, but the sleep sacks that they, that the, when you're a, a new parent and you bring the kid home and you put them in their sleep sack and you know, you're like, Oh, well, I'll just put them in this and it'll be perfectly fine. You find that they just like wet themselves through the thing constantly because the way that their legs are or whatever it was, they just basically went right through it. And you're like, why didn't someone tell me this? Cause I'm like literally doing a load of laundry at midnight just to basically have more clothes for the kid or at least sacks. Cause you only have so much of certain things. It was like, it was the dumbest thing in the world. Like this is a, anyway. I never had that issue. I never had that issue. Honestly, oh. I'm, I guess I lucked out. I mean, we had a few leaks here and there, but very rarely. I don't know. I think I melt. I met all of, all of it. I, I ran the gamut between the two of them. But it's, yeah, it's interesting. You just you, you figure it out and you move on. Yeah. Boys, boys are easier. Just kidding. Uh, <laughs> not yet. No, there. I, I would say girls are probably easier early. That's yeah. what I keep hearing. Yeah, but you know, two children. You know, until until Jones has his second, he won't understand this. But the two children go from the most of polar extremes. They love each other one minute and they hate each other the next. And that transition is not predictable. It's not really identifiable. It's just, it goes, I suppose if you put a camera on them, you could identify the moment that it all went south, but they go from love to hate to love with such amazing speed and unpredictability that it's quite a thing. (laughs) that's, That's the nature of siblings. Anyway, good on you, Jones. I hope you're I hope you're doing well. Uh, I'm sure you're going to be an excellent father. So good good luck to you, sir. Oh yeah, uh, it's been a fun. Our parenting news segment tonight comes from PolicyGenius.com, which is a blog, but it was an interesting one that I thought because we kind of touched on it a little bit, but let's get a little bit further into it. Here's how much parents would pay to avoid a tantrum. All of it. Now I have nine and five and Leon has four. Yep. Okay. The article goes on to say parenting can be exhausting and mothers tend to take on a majority of responsibilities. True. Full stop. Moms do more work. One Mm -hmm. in four moms, 24% say they would pay $50 or more to avoid a tantrum or argument with their children. According Mm -hmm. to the policy genius parents and money survey. It may feel tempting to spend money on your kids to avoid an argument, especially heading into Mother's Day, but your child could perceive that as getting rewarded for bad behavior, a shopping expert and mother to a 14-year-old daughter. You want to be careful about what behavior rewarding. You don't want to train your kids incorrectly, so if your kid throws themselves on the floor, they think they're going to get money. 
<laughs> Instead of paying to avoid a tantrum, here's how you can reinforce good financial behaviors with your children. You ready? Number one, set financial boundaries. As a parent, you may be tempted to give your child whatever they ask for, but that's not emotionally or financially sustainable. One of the simplest ways to manage your child's expectations is to say no. Otherwise, your kid is eventually going to ask for something out of your budget. This is important because I think in many aspects of life, even up to adults now, because I'm starting to see this in Arizona, they're relaxing mask restrictions, except for large multi-state chains who still put up the, you got to wear a mask sign, but then they don't enforce it. So people walk into a store with a mask on and they see somebody without a mask on and they go, wait a minute, I thought you said masks. So if it's an unenforced rule, it's a useless rule. And if there's more than one useless rule, you start to question every other rule. So you have to set boundaries with your children and you've got to be consistent with them. Thoughts on that? I, de I definitely agree with setting boundaries. Uh, I mean, I don't know that it, <laughs> my personal story comes from this bullet, but yeah, I do agree. You can't waver. You can't send mixed messages. Kids are just too smart, right? You're, they're they're constantly like velociraptors from Jurassic Park, looking for weaknesses <laughs> in the fence, and they will yeah. hit it and hit it and hit it and hit it until they find the weakness in the fence. They're relentless. They don't give up. They're stronger than you. They have more mental. Uh, longevity when it comes to this it's fun for them it's a game they're born trolls all of them they're <laughs> trolls they love to just chew you up and spit you out and they know exactly what to say and what to do to make you fire up so yes it's important to set boundaries financial boundaries there are, there are no real consequences what, what are you going to do you're not going to send your kid to jail Oh, they figure that out real quick. What's the consequence? We can do. Yeah. And, and now we live in a society that, you know, if, if you even whiff that you might spank your child, you know, might, you know, your four-year-old's already like, I'll sue you. Yeah. I, I already, I already have uh, Facebook. I, I know what I can do. Yeah. We're, we're going like, to divorce, divorce you. We're going to divorce you and I'm going to take agency over my own life. You're four. How did you get social media already? How do you already have 2 million followers? What the hell just happened? So the article goes on to give a couple of other ideas on financial discipline for children. So rather than pay them to not do a tantrum, which I think only works at a certain age, it talks about the idea of financial discipline. So you guys understand these concepts because you guys are good with money. But when you're trying to build a relationship with money around your child, instead of giving your child money to avoid bad behavior, give them money as a reward. And I think you could go one step further as to say, start setting up the expectation of what they're going to have once they get out of the house. And that's, if you want money, you got to do a job that provides value. What I'm curious to know is the article doesn't go into what age you want to do this, but at some point, what age do you start giving your kids payable chores? Cause they should be doing certain chores by themselves. What do you guys well, think? We should be doing chores early. Like just, I don't care if it's just taking their plate to the, to the, to, to the uh, sink for cleaning. I mean, Absolutely. I'm not saying that's a chore, but it's not necessarily, at least it's giving ownership to their action. And so whether it's, you know, cleaning up their room, putting away their toys, I mean, that's, that's not a chore, but that's something they need to be tidy with. I mean, it's, it, I think it starts at a very young age. Now the question oh. is too, is it like, what do you say? No, I was going to say, I mean, really, I mean, money is only important to us because it has value. It doesn't really have that much value to toddlers. So we took the Chuck E. Cheese, we took the Chuck E. Cheese route. We do have a chore chart. We okay. have prizes that cost Monopoly money. And she earns the Monopoly money based on her getting her chores done and whether or not she gets it done or not. And then she can buy these toys that are. It's almost like the ticket system at Chuck E. Cheese, you know, and then that's what she gets. So she knows what's on the table. And we obviously are pretty savvy on what she likes and what she doesn't like. So that's that's what's on the table. Uh, I thought it would be a great system. It worked early on, but now she's kind of like, meh, 
I still don't want to do that. So can, can I ask though, like, I think the biggest problem with it is consistency, like every week or, you know, I guess it's follow up. Like it's, it's holding accountability if something isn't there or, you know, obviously our, our lives get so different where, you know, we do a vacation or every week is something different. So that chore maybe slipped. And so it's just trying to say the consistency, is that kind of a difficult thing to apply or is it not? Like, I think that's what I think to be difficult with some kind of monetary or fake monetary kind of system. Well, I think, you, I think you're on to something there, Jones. And I think what we ended up figuring out, or at least what I figured out for sure is that maybe we set the bar too high because we have certain expectations we wanted her to hit, like got to do, got to do your medicine and teeth tonight. Got to, you know, when you, you got to pick up your toys, I mean, very basic things, but we found that she just couldn't accomplish them <laughs> enough to get enough funds to get a toy. So she gave up. Hmm. Like, I think that's what ended up happening, which sucked because you well, wanted her to hit all these milestones, but she didn't see the value in winning because if she did four out of 10, she didn't feel rewarded for the four. So she's like, screw it. I won't do any, you know? And it's, yeah. See, there's a monetary the problem. It's like, yeah. Yeah. And so like you end up, you end up putting the goal so far away. So it, I guess to that point is that maybe not, it's an object, but it's a, it's an event or something. So it's like, if you're good enough, you know, this, this, and this, then we get to go do this, or I don't know. It's just kind of an interesting concept of, of reward um, through some sense of, you know, chore or, action-based you know parenting it's i i I open everyone else has pretty much everyone has their own kind of story to it it. you're absolutely right i think what what you're going to notice you will find out as a parent what motivates your kid to do what they're going to do right and you got to keep this trial and error thing until you figure out what's going to motivate them to get them down the path you're trying to get them down and you know I don't know what it is. We haven't figured that out yet. Um, I think she's figured out how to put us down the path she wants us to go, but I haven't figured out the other way around yet. Mm. Some of the stuff will surprise you. Some of it makes no logical sense whatsoever. My kids love the color chart and they love clipping up and down the color chart. And really what we did was we took a cue from what's going on at school because they're at school so many hours a day. It's so much easier for us to just figure out what their teachers are doing and mimic what their teachers are doing because it's consistency. They understand it. So if they come home, they tell us what color they got and we immediately reset the color chart to that color. And then that gives them opportunities to improve. Uh, And so they start out at green and from green, they can go down to yellow, orange, and red. My children have never been to red. And if they do, I'll have to come up with some punishment for them. But from green, they can go up to blue, indigo, purple, rainbow. And then the thing with that is after rainbow, you have to start coming up with new things. So they clip up to the teacher's shirt, they clip up to the chalkboard, they clip up to the teacher's desk, they clip up to the principal's office, and you just keep going. You know, there is no stopping point. And then what they do, similar to what I think what Leanne's talking about is they start asking questions. Well, what's above the principal's office? And I say the second story window. Well, what's above that? Uh, the roof. You'll find what's out when you get there. What's above that? Right. And then you get to, why don't you get there first? And then we'll talk about it. Because until you're there, you don't need to know where the limit is. The limit is only the limit once you've reached it. And then that also allows you to spin off into another conversation. Uh, the other thing that I thought was very, very unique, which I don't know if you use this Leon or not, but counting, I can count to three and by one, 90% of the time, my kids will do what I want them to do. And I don't know what that is because I've gotten to three before and I really can't do anything. I'm not going to strike my kids. I'm not going to bruise them, but I've gotten to three and three is me forcibly picking them up and bringing them where I want them to be or forcibly bringing them over to what I want them to do and then staring at them until they do it. But the idea of once you start that countdown, the anticipation of the unknown, I think is extremely powerful. And I don't understand why, because as an adult, you're like, all right, what's three? Then once you know what three is, you go, all right, do I care what three is? Because it's not death. So they don't do that. 
at least not at the age that I'm working on. So even the nine-year-old, you count, you start counting. By the time you get to two, they know nothing's going to happen, but they don't know. And so I always found that to be a very interesting dynamic. That's good stuff. We'll have to give it a try. Yeah. Turn into our parents. (laughs) Don't we uh, always revert back to our parents? Ah, probably. Don't you give me that face? You're going to get it? (laughs) I'll turn this car around. What? Don't make me get the spoon. (laughs) That wraps up our brown bulletin for this week, boys. Thank you very much to our special guest, Mr. Jones. You guys have any final thoughts for tonight? I don't think. Don't eat yellow snow. This place is dead anyway, man.